Hey, I'm Tommy Chong. Welcome to High on Homegrown. Yes, yes, everybody, and welcome to High on Homegrown, the cannabis podcast from Percy'sGrowRoom.com. In this week's interview, we have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Duvall, who is Associate Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of New Mexico. He's also an author of a couple of cannabis books, and the one in specific that we speak about in this episode is his book called The African Roots of Marijuana. And it's really interesting, man. We had a great conversation with Chris and we discussed the history of cannabis, how it moved from Africa over to the Americas and how it moved from Southeast Asia into Africa and just how it was transported around the world and how recently it was as well, which was surprising. Anyway, I'll leave Chris do all the talking and I hope you enjoyed this interview. Roll yourself something nice, big fat one, get super high and enjoy this interview with Chris Duvall. I think you'll enjoy it and I'll speak to you at the end of this. See you in a bit. very much for joining us I, I am Mackie I'm from the UK we also have Monkey hey. Monkey do you want to say hello hey Chris a monkey down here in the southeast US how's it going today oh great yeah pretty good cool and you are Christopher did I say it right did I mess it up <laughs> I know I've just asked but I've forgotten already gosh Duval Duval cool, cool. so yeah. do you want to introduce yourself so our listeners know who you are and what you do yeah, my name is Chris Duval. I'm a professor of geography at the University of New Mexico in the U.S., and I do research on people-plant interactions, and I uh, also teach as part of my uh, work as a professor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you've also got a book, right, um, about the history of marijuana in Africa. Yeah, I've actually written two books on cannabis. Right. Um, the first one was really a kind of a world history. And I wrote that after, you know, I, and then my second book, as you mentioned, is on the African roots of marijuana. And um, I wrote the first one after I'd started the second one, because uh, I found in order to understand what was going on in Africa, I really had to understand the world context. So that was uh really what I did in the first book and then went back to the African topic for the second book. All right. Is, is, have you always had uh, interest in cannabis or is it just part of the, the interesting plants that you have? Yeah, actually I'm, I'm, you know, if I, I, I feel like I'm a little different from most people that write about cannabis because that wasn't my initial interest. My, my academic background in trading is in African studies. So really interested in learning about how African cultures have shaped global culture. And, um, you know, as I was doing research on people and plants in in West Africa, I, through a series of connections in in the literature, found reference to cannabis being called Angolan tobacco, which uh, when you have plant names that include a geographic name like that a lot of times that actually is meaningful mm. for where the plant came from sometimes it's not sometimes it's you know human ideas about uh plants and, and animals you know as well um but seeing that i became interested in it because obviously I, you know like virtually everyone on earth i know of the existence of cannabis know what mm. it's used for and found a really big literature about the 
plants past in Africa, um, alongside, you know, present literature about its importance uh, uh, globally. Um, and so mm -hmm. I found it fascinating to learn about that and, and uh, find that it was a really under-researched topic. People that have studied cannabis generally haven't studied Africa as much, and people who've studied Africa haven't studied cannabis. So it's kind of a a space where I found a lot of work that could be done. Mm, like groundbreaking. A lot of people haven't stepped foot there before. Yeah. That's interesting. It's not Angolian tobacco is what it was called, right? Yeah, there was, you know, back in the, the 19th century really is where um, it's very well documented. It was called Angolan tobacco. It was called Congo tobacco. Um, and, and really had those names because, um, of the people who initially carried it to different parts of the Atlantic world. Um, most of them were from um, either Angola or Congo, or at least that's where they were embarked on, on slave ships, mm -hmm. right? And so the plant traveled with slaves on slave ships. And uh, when it landed in different points in the Americas, um, that's where people you know, initially encountered it was from people that were coming from those, those different places. Right. And that, that naming came with it. Right. That's interesting. So it didn't exist in the Americas until a few hundred years ago, essentially it came from Africa on slave ships and moved over to the new world. Yeah. And as you know, you know, the naming and taxonomy of cannabis is complicated and it's, it has been controversial. Um, mm. But, you know, cannabis did travel to the Americas from Europe uh, early on. It was one of the more important uh, or at least potentially important economic crops that the colonialists brought. But in terms of the genetics and taxonomy of cannabis, those were effectively, you know, a different species. If you want to use that terminology, it was a different genetic group hmm. uh, that didn't have the genetic machinery to make THC. Um, and um, so, I mean, it was planted in, in many places, uh, you know, places where Europeans settled, generally didn't succeed in those places for various reasons. Um, you know, in in temperate areas, it, it was able to grow, but, you know, it was a labor intensive, so the settlers mm -hmm. didn't grow it. In low latitude areas, it just really didn't grow. It, it's not adapted to day length of tropical latitudes. And, you know, so in those kind of low latitude areas, the plants that were introduced that were able to grow and became what we think of as marijuana, right? Mm -hmm. um, those were principally from Africa, carried by enslaved Africans. There was a couple of other kind of vectors, you know, human migrations that carried in those areas. But if you just look at the population movements, human population movements, there was a, a much greater number of Africans who um, were disembarked in low latitude Americas compared to all Europeans, all, you know, you know, the South Asians, people from East Asia mm -hmm. um, as well. So, I mean, this was a huge human migration, a forced migration that, you know, a small number of people carried plants, but because a large number of people, that was primarily where the, the plants that could produce THC came from in the Americas. Right. So essentially they were moving the, 
the cannabis that was high in THC, or at least have a decent amount of THC, and not just hemp. Yep. Like, yeah, like, exactly, exactly. So it was more for the medicinal properties of the plant and the recreational purposes of it, rather than the textiles. Do you think? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's we have, um, you know, good records of that from Africa. Um, fewer records from the Americas, simply because there wasn't as much. Um, being written about enslaved uh, people in the Americas. But within Africa, the primary uses were as a stimulant um, mm -hmm. to, mm. to take before working, before traveling, um, and, you know, a relaxant, I guess, you know, something to take at the end of the day to hang out with your friends and talk and things like that. But there's a lot of accounts of how this was used right before labor. I mean, right. a lot of accounts, porters, which were people that had, you know, very difficult jobs carrying, mm -hmm. you know, 50 to 80 pounds on their heads for miles and miles for weeks and weeks. Um, you know, there was no other beast of burden really. And, and so these people had very difficult jobs and mm -hmm. there's a lot of accounts of them getting up in the morning, smoking and, and getting going. And, and of course, you know, many people who are familiar with cannabis, you know, marijuana nowadays, the sativa strains, are a lot of times considered like a pseudo stimulant mm -hmm. and uh, cannabis in in sub-saharan africa was all you know essentially the the sativa strain so you yeah, know it makes yeah. sense that people are using it in this way and a lot of those uh, sativa strains from africa as well uh, they have thcv in which is seen yep. as a, a stimulant yeah and and in that one, actually, you know, it's uh, tetrahydrocannabivirin is um, also looked at, you know, physiologically as, as kind of being an appetite suppressant. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of accounts from, you know, Southeast Africa. So, you know, like the countries of Malawi and, and Zambia and, and neighboring areas um, of people taking cannabis both to stimulate work and suppress appetite. And so over you know, time, over decades to centuries, the kind of selection of plants to serve those you know, physio pharmacological ends ended up producing these strains that are, are really valued nowadays because they have this THCV rich um, kind of chemistry. And, and you know, again, people who know about you know, cannabis, um, you know, nowadays know that there's there's very few strains that actually have THCV rich mm -hmm. kind of profiles. Yeah, for sure. Durban poison being one of them, I think. Yes. Yep. But like you say, there is very few strains nowadays with the THCV in it. It's yeah, a shame. Congolese, a few other African strains, but yeah, definitely yeah. African. Yeah, and so I mean that's an, another thing that to me is really important to see is that these historical documents of why people were taking the 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 you know the drug and and what effects they had uh, experienced aligns with um, what we know nowadays about the chemistry of it you know because you know if you look at historical documents it's from the perspective of whoever wrote it and these are all written by Europeans outside of observers and so right. there's lots of problems in how you know Europeans frame drugs and drug use um, around the world uh, from Europe itself to every other corner. Um, and so it's, you know, you read the stories about people behaving crazy or doing things like that. It's sometimes hard to understand whether they're actually observing, you know, writing what they observed or if they're just kind of projecting these stereotypes on it. But mm -hmm. in these cases where we can see 
look, the, the Europeans say that the African peoples are using the plant as a stimulant, as an appetite suppressant. Well, that aligns with the, the chemistry that we know of. Um, and you mentioned Durban poison, mm -hmm. things like Malawi gold and, and Angola red. You know, these are all you know associated with these specific population movements that we can understand as moving kind of across the continent with the with the slave trade, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, for various reasons, we don't see that such a strong. Uh, we don't see the the TCV kind of signal um, in American plant populations for a couple of reasons. One is because the American plant populations were a mix of genetics from a lot of different places, right? East Asia, different parts of Africa, different parts of South South Asia. But then also, we just don't have much botany and testing of kind of land races of local varieties of cannabis in the Americas. Um, mm. There's been some work on it, but for the most part, there isn't. And what we know about it is from, you know, uh, police raids and, and people testing the yeah. plants that were seized by police, which were grown for commercial purposes and, and weren't necessarily reflective of long-term genetics in the area. And, so, and have a biased opinion in the testing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, they, you know, they were looking for, Certain things and generally just, you know, I mean, they didn't know what they were looking for, honestly, until the <laughs> right. Um, but you know, by the mid-60s, they could actually test for THC. I mean, it wasn't really well done until the 70s or so, but that's all they were looking for. So we didn't, you know, we don't from mm. police um, you know, captured cannabis. I mean, there's very little other than just kind of THC percentage. Um mm -hmm. Which is, is interesting, but it's not very helpful for understanding things. Um, yeah, because it has been cultivated for the last what, hundred years to try and increase the THC levels in it. And yeah, it's... yeah, it, it, at least. I mean, but you mm -hmm. know, you can look at, um, you know, and there's a really good literature on South Asia from, you know, there's a the famous report, the Indian Drugs Commission report from 1893, I think it was, um, that is a really thorough description of how just the expertise people had in producing cannabis in that area. But, you know, cannabis knowledge in South Asia is very well documented for, for centuries before that. And there's been centuries, millennia of expertise of selecting plants for desired outcomes. And a lot of that would end up you know, increasing THC content. Mm. But as you say in the last century, I mean, that's been the, the reason it hasn't been sort of the, you know, expanding other cannabinoids or other, you know, chemical signatures in there. It's just been about THC. So we get a really strong kind of characteristic of the plant population nowadays in commercial context. So it's... Mm -hmm. Very interesting, man. Yeah. But when, when it comes to the... The African Roots of Marijuana, which is the title of your book. Uh, how far back does history go with uh, cannabis in Africa? Did you do any research on that, like the earliest use of it? Is there any record of it? Yeah, and so like history, meaning the, the published documents, um, that really goes back to the mid-1600s is when we first have documents written about it. Um, right. You know, that's in South Africa, you know, the early Dutch travelers and, and settlers there wrote about it. Um, there's some earlier, um, uh, you know, documentation in North Africa, Egypt in particular, 
um, because it was connected to, you know, the highly literary cultures of, of what we call the Middle East, uh, Middle East now. Um, but prior to that, there's archaeology, right? Um, paleobotany, um, which are different ways of kind of kind of understanding the plant's past that aren't written, so they're not written history. But we have pipes and pipe technology. Um, Going back about 2,000 years is the earliest pipes that are known um, from Sub-Saharan Africa. Most pipes are, are more recent, you know, within the past thousand years or so. And then we also have uh, fossil pollen of cannabis in Eastern Africa, Madagascar in particular, about wow. thousand years ago as well. And so what I think from looking at all the evidence is that, you know, about 2,000 years ago, it somehow made its way to Madagascar and then slowly over the following centuries, it made it to mainland East Africa and traveled, you know, to Southern Africa and then eventually across the continent. But that was a slow process, like most plant dispersals. Um, and so clearly people in the, in the main part of the continent, you know, beyond Madagascar, they were smoking something before cannabis arrived. Um, we don't know exactly, but, um, we suspect maybe detura, which is is very toxic, but it does, um, you know, in small doses give a, a high. Hmm. Don't know for sure. The earliest evidence that we have that cannabis was indeed smoked are pipes uh, with residue in them from Ethiopia. I think that was about 1300 is when those dated to. There's controversy about whether we can be certain if the residue in those pipes was cannabis, but you know, given the low toxicity of cannabis, given the the ease of of growing it, um, given its its later use and utility, we can kind of infer that that a lot of the pipes, a lot of the activity, starting about you know a thousand years ago, were were directed towards cannabis. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, but it's important to say, you know, really the the old, old part of, of cannabis in Africa is just the eastern half of the continent. Hmm. West Africa, there's a lot of places that really didn't have any cannabis, no knowledge of it until, you know, the mid 1800s or later. So, wow, that soon. That's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And, and so places like Sierra Leone and Nigeria, the earliest evidence we have there is only from the you know 1840s 1850s something like that a lot of that was was transported by enslaved people from central africa right the hmm. the fish when they suppressed the slave trade captured slave ships and resettled people in west africa and we have a lot of evidence in sierra leone in particular that that the people that they landed there the enslaved people that they freed into Sierra Leone were carrying the seeds. They brought the seeds and they brought the knowledge of it as well. So that's not across the Atlantic in the same way as going to Brazil or, or mm. Cuba or something, but it's the same enslaved migration that ended up in Sierra Leone. It's very well documented there. But again, that's you know 200 years at most. Mm. Yeah, it's not very long ago, really. Yeah. So where does it where does uh like indica coming to this you know stuff from the uh southeast asia and the middle east where, yeah, yeah where does that come in with the did that make its way into africa at any point can you tell 
Yeah, um, probably not to Sub-Saharan Africa, but uh, definitely to Northern Africa. So, you know, Egypt, Morocco, that area. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to know because obviously you can't test the genetics of a plant, you know, in the past. Mm -hmm. And the the descriptions, again, are are coming from European observers. And so it's kind of hard to know exactly what was going on. But based on current biogeography, like the distribution of the plants and, and what we can get from the historical documents, the Indica really is kind of in northwestern India is where we can think of it as being most important. And it kind of appears to disper- have dispersed, you know, east, or I'm sorry, west from there, you know, into you know, modern Iran, into mm-hmm. the Middle East, across North Africa. And so that's where we really see that. And, and in those areas, you see um, the accounts of cannabis being used more commonly as, as a, a strong relaxant, right? That people would use it and they would be, you know, Couch lock, couch lock, is what you would see in the in the accounts. But at the same time, there was clearly you know stimulant type effects um, there. Probably there was multiple strains that that farmers were managing for different markets because in North Africa, in you know the Eastern Mediterranean, so you know Turkey and and, and her- neighboring areas there, you still have accounts of laborers using it as a stimulant. So, mm. uh, you know, it, it's malleable. There is a power of suggestion, but there's also a physiology to it. There's a pharmacology to it. So we see kind of these different um, effects, likely, again, likely associated with different agricultures at different strategies and plant selection that, that, um, you know, as familiar to producers nowadays, but, you know, it have, have existed since people grew cannabis, really. Mm-hmm. Crazy. So you are in New Mexico, right? Yeah. Is New Mexico yeah. legal now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. For they adult use as well as medical. Yeah. Yeah. And it was medical. They actually passed a medical law here in like 1978, I think was the first one passed in the U.S., but it was wow. never enacted. Uh, for mm. various reasons, and they enacted medical, I think, in 2012, and adult use opened uh, just about a year ago. It was passed in 2021, and I think it was, mm-hmm. I think it was April of 2022 when the market opened, and they've sold lots again, <laughs> hundreds of millions. Uh, or, no, I don't remember the exact figures, but you know, a lot. It's been very successful, and that's even though they're, you know, we're border bordering Colorado and Colorado has captured the market in this region right. for a long time. There's, there's a strong market here. Yeah. But you're also bordering Texas, which is a market that, uh, that you, yeah. you have now an opportunity to capture. Yeah. And, and that's actually, if you look at where the sales are biggest in the state of New Mexico, it's along the Texas border. So no. probably haven't heard of like Clovis and the Hobbs. And, oh, I know those. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's, you get all the Texans coming across the border to to stock up. Um, That's you know. where the green rush goes, right down there, where you're going to get these border crossers to sell the big money and move it back. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. You would think that the Texas legislature would see they're leaking money, but oh well, they don't see. Well, it Texas has, is an interesting political. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's where you're 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 at right now, but. Um, it's a it's an interesting place to try to understand their politics. I mean, Oklahoma as well. Oklahoma, mm-hmm. 
uh, borders New Mexico just a little bit. And so there's um, little crossing there, but Oklahoma has medical um, laws that are amongst the most wide open. Mm -hmm. and you can, you know, get medical license for just about anything there. Mm -hmm. uh, but they had the chance to approve adult markets uh, early this year or late last year, and they, they resoundingly said no. Um, yeah, and that surprised me actually, but uh, I guess they're pushing back because they're, they're trying to get that wild west attitude taken away now. Yeah, and you know they have a similar sort of social conservatism as in Texas. Here I'm talking like I'm a political scientist. I'm not no, I understand. I hear you. You know, you know they have the same sort of political dynamic, and I think that that you know really heavily influenced how people thought of the adult market, you know, because it was just framed as recreational, right? And right. and it different from how people thought of the medical market. So um, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I, I mean, I don't know what will continue happening in this country because I just don't see a lot of uh, likelihood that the federal government is going to act. I mean, I just don't it, there's no benefit really for the federal government to do anything because it's right. working itself out on the state level. So I don't know. Yeah. We'll, so you don't think we'll it's going to uh, be legal federally anytime soon? I, I don't know. I mean, monkey, you're in the U S you know. <laughs> I, I know exactly what, I know exactly what you're saying. Every you time know, there's a signal from Congress or the president that we're going to make a move, all it is is a signal and there's no movement ever. Yeah. yeah and I mean, it it allows the federal government to maintain its like anti-drug stance um mm -hmm. which is politically valuable in some you know, domestic context but also within the international drug control um you know regime that's the u.s role um and you know the the fact that the states are dealing with it they're making money out of it they're you know have their benefit out of it the federal government doesn't involve itself um I just don't see a strong reason for the federal government to, I mean, I see on my own behalf, there's reasons that the federal government should act, but I don't see right. much motivation for the actors in the government to do anything. Um, no, it, it's a political volleyball right now. And it's, you know, they toss it out there when they need to, to get the crowd cheering a little bit. And, yeah. You know, I was, it never happens. Yeah, and I was really curious back way back in 2016 if um, Hillary Clinton had been elected, what Obama might have done in his last, you know, his lame duck period before um, she would have been inaugurated. But obviously that didn't happen. But, you know, there may be windows like that where there's, a, you know, a president or some other leader who has, you know, nothing to lose by doing it because they're a lame duck and, and so mm -hmm. they might act but you know given the regulatory structure i don't know if that would really do anything um, either so yeah but you're looking at the the largest cities in america uh we have 22 states now that are that are recreationally legal i would think you would have to say agree with it i haven't done the math but we have more than 50 percent of the american population has access to recreational cannabis and the government is still in denial about this yeah yeah and you know, so it's it's interesting and to kind of see it as a, you know, as I'm an American citizen being a participant in that that you know kind mm -hmm. of abstract sense. But you know, look, you know, my academic focus on Africa, kind of looking at, you know, what's going on 
on that continent with legalization or even decriminalization, um, there's a lot of disparities that people in Africa are, are seeing, um, you know, in terms of of laws and law enforcement and access to the, you know, the wealth of the markets that are emerging from cannabis that they're that just aren't available to most people in Africa. So, right. Uh, you know, interesting to see in the global context as well. Exactly. Mm. Now, I, your your work in the uh, the cannabis field in Africa is uh, is amazing. But I, I mean, I've been made aware that uh, African immigrants to the South actually brought with them other things that we take for granted. One of them was, as I understand it, okra. You know. Yeah. Rice. That's another one. I mean, right? cannabis is a really a prominent plant a prominent crop and you know there's a lot of people who are interested in it and it's fast mm -hmm. but historically it was yeah you know sort of important but you know africans brought really important food crops you know millets and rice and, and mm -hmm. that and you know there's been other scholars you know judith carney is is the most prominent uh, she's a geographer at ucla who showed that, you know, African knowledge, African crops basically fed the slave trade for most of its existence um, because they knew how to grow and produce food in these low latitude areas that Europeans could hardly even survive in, right? And so cannabis is just one of a, a whole set of crops that were important in Africa, mm -hmm. traveled with Africans. And, and cannabis, um, you know, is actually you know, in my, in my view, at least, has the best documented, you know, evidence that slaves kept it and carried it. There's accounts, uh, you know, oral histories in Brazil about people traveling with the seeds, you know, rolled up in the, the rags that they were allowed to wear. There's actually an account from Gabon where an, a, an American traveler observed or reported observing a slave who showed him the cannabis seeds that, that this slave was carrying and hoping to plant with him. And we, we have oral histories about other plants, but we don't have these direct observations, um, which I find is really remarkable. Um, mm. But for the most part, the Europeans just, they didn't really care. I mean, they were like, boy, this, you know, that African tobacco smells terrible, you know, <laughs> you, know that, you know, and you can kind of infer that they weren't smelling tobacco and people use mm. the word tobacco and, and other you know, other, other words that mean tobacco to kind of hide what they're smoking. Um, and we see that, but, you know, the term, the words for cannabis and tobacco are really informative to help kind of help us understand who knew about the plant, who used the plant, how they used it, and how the plant traveled. And, and so the, the word marijuana itself is traceable to Angola and, and ultimately to places like Malawi in, in southeastern Africa. All right. I thought marijuana was a made up word from the government to make it sound Mexican. Yeah. And and that's, you know, there's layers to it. And, and certainly it was adopted into the anti-drug discourse in the U.S. because mm -hmm. it was a foreign sounding thing in, in mm -hmm. back in the early 20th century in the U.S. Um, I mean, it was Mexican as the was the problem and 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 so anything that would make it like kind of associated with these racist ideas and and xenophobic ideas was beneficial but if you look at the term in mexico right it's just one of many terms in the americas that is similar right so you have marimba in 
in, you know, and these are historic, right? I don't know for certain how they're used nowadays, but I know that that term in Colombia was used up into the 1970s. So marimba there, um, you also have that in Cuba. You have marumba and um, Brazil, Mar marijuana, marijuana um, is how it's spelled in, in Brazil as well amongst other terms that are repeated in different parts of the, the, the Americas. If you go to Africa and you look at the terms that are used there, um, those marijuana type terms correspond with the term mariamba, which is used in a number of different um, Bantu family languages in Eastern and Western Central Africa. And basically the riamba is the name of the plant. And if you pluralize it with that, prefix ma, it's a plural, right, mariamba, um, but that's how people talked about things to smoke, so leaves to smoke, not just a singular leaf, but right. multiple, right, and you see that in other words, like macanya is leaves generally, and it was used for tobacco, but also kind of for cannabis to hide what you're smoking, and, and that's where you get, you know, words that are, you know, known you know, in, in Jamaica, right? You have Makanya, you have Kanya, you have Kaya, right? That was um, made famous in the, the Bob Marley and the Whalers album, right? And so all of these terms, you have them throughout the Americas. Many of them you can trace back to particular areas in Africa where people were, were taken from, right? Enslaved and taken from those areas. There's of course, lots of other terms and, and Cannabis as a drug has picked up so many nicknames, and there's books about all the you know the mm. terms used for cannabis. Um, it's it's kind of messy in some senses, but if you look at the roots of where these terms are coming from, a lot of them go to to Western Africa. Some of them go to to Eastern Africa as well, where you had a minor um, you know, minor migration pathway from of slaves from places like Mozambique um, to Brazil. So the linguistics are interesting. Mm, definitely. I never knew all of that. Yeah. It's a lot of information. Are you a cannabis user? Do you use cannabis yourself? I have in the past. I don't, I don't currently, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, you know, something that, that is really helpful in a lot of respects. Um, you know, I had a back injury, uh, 2009 is when that was. And, you know, the, experiencing the pain associated with that. I mean, cannabis was very helpful for kind of distracting from the pain, if, if nothing else. Um, mm -hmm. but, you know, talking with people, you know, around me that I encountered that, you know, it's just really useful for a lot of different reasons for people. And, um, you know, to me, that's, you know, it's, I think it's over-promised and oversold in so many contexts. People say it's going to cure this and that, whatever, which, there's not a lot of basis for, hmm. but it's really underutilized, right? The the century plus of prohibition has meant that we just haven't learned about the plan much. Mm -hmm. So many things that 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 people can do through using the plant that will improve things for people, right? It's not necessarily going to cure cancer or whatever you know is attributed to it, but if it makes people able to relax better, helps people deal with anxiety better, helps people blow off steam better. I mean, that's all of these things we just haven't learned enough about and have not taken advantage of the, the plans in that respect. Um, mm -hmm. 
which you know i think is um is yeah i mean that's the way it is it's too bad because you know if we have a resource and we're not using it to its benefit our benefit um that's that's not good use of resources um you know so it's interesting to me it's really interesting to see how not just its legality has changed over time but kind of how social perceptions of it have changed mm. over time you know i grew up in the 80s and 90s right as a teenager in college and like it was just taboo back then in, in mm. many cases um you know which you know if you think of what young people were doing then and with and still are doing like in terms of alcohol consumption of, you know synthetic drugs and 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 things like that um it's really too bad that that the dynamic of prohibition have pushed us towards riskier behaviors than than away from those behaviors mm. so it's really interesting to see it unfold yeah it is for sure they're the whole teenagers chasing after the to taboo thing and when you see it being legalized in all these places teen use seems to be down yeah it is um and that's to me like it's just kind of this cycle of 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 change um you know that i think that you know we'll see it come and go over time maybe it will only you know maybe that the adult markets are a good thing because it pushes it to adults right mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and and not just in terms of legal access, but just kind of in terms of attitudes towards like who is using and who isn't using, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's an interesting set of dynamics, but you know, definitely looking at drug law reforms around the world in the last couple of decades, not just cannabis, but you know, looking at harm reduction as a strategy, um, that's just really crucial to, to better decision making about resources yeah, you absolutely do, yeah. how to improve things for for humans so mm -hmm. um you know and that's to me what's a little bit frustrating about looking at the african context you know as an outsider like these moves that i'm seeing in the u.s and and, and elsewhere towards harm reduction towards um you know um opening you know, legal markets to reduce uh, black markets, that's just not happening in many places in Africa. South Africa is really the only place that that has moved in that direction. The other places where you can, you know, the headlines say that like Lesotho legalizes cannabis. Um, it's not really, it's just, you know, licensing particular companies to grow a small number of plants for mm -hmm. the for export markets, things like that. So. Mm -hmm. It's too bad that you know governance is making and so this kind of you know decriminalization legalization you know harm reduction mm -hmm. is not proceeding evenly um across the globe which is which is too bad but you know yeah. it's, society has its own decisions to make mm -hmm. one day i think we'll get there but it's going to take us a while yeah but i mean just seeing what's happened the last 25 years i mean when you know i i would have you know, the late nineties, I would have guessed that, you know, California's, um, you know, medical marijuana law. And I was living there at the time. I, I, you know, I don't remember what specifically I thought, but generally it was like, you know, this is a California thing and that's just the way it's going to be. And we'll never see it expand beyond that. Um, mm -hmm. It's been remarkable. I mean, the fact that there's a liberal 
medical market in a place like Oklahoma. Yeah, that, that seems to be the most shocking thing for most people. That Oklahoma exactly. did it, you know, and Oklahoma did it the best, apparently. It was is the most lenient, at least. Yeah, Monkey, you might know better than I do. South Dakota, I think, just um, passed adult markets, or at least they, they were looking at doing that. I don't know if they actually passed it. Do you have any idea? Mm, let's see. Was South Dakota the one that passed it and got it pulled back by the governor? Oh, okay. Well, even uh, I think that that was one of them. That one of the Dakotas. Now, there's so many of the laws that I'm trying to remember. I'd have to sit there and, and look it up right now. But one of the Dakotas, the population said yes to adult use, but they came back with a with a loophole in the law, basically saying, "Wait a minute, the law has to 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 do one thing at a time, and you can't say it's legal for adult use and anybody can do it because that's more than one thing at a time. So that we're going to have to go back and piecemeal the law. Like, okay, it's legal." Okay, here's a license fee. Okay, here's the next step. But yeah, yeah. it's political maneuvering that you see this quite a bit in, in all over the country. Your advocates versus your foes, and the foes will use their state laws against it. Against it, and I mean, it happened in Mississippi with uh, Governor Tate over there. He, uh, you know, they, they passed uh, medical marijuana, and he turned around and says, "Nope, you can't do this." And so he pulled it back, and they had to push it through him. Oh, man, this is the South. You know how it is down here. Yeah. Well, I mean, South Dakota, I mentioned that. And I'm pretty sure that's the one um, you're looking at because, you know, those, those states, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, and uh, uh -huh. Idaho um, is the part of the country I'm originally from. And uh, um, they are like the states who have like, they maintain their like, you know, like laws from the 1950s or whatever, you know, as, as far as cannabis goes or you know, and just to see that there was that movement in South Dakota really surprised me, but at the same time didn't surprise me because I think people are, you know, gaining the experience of seeing around the country that this process is happening and is not leading to the implosion of civilization or whatever. I mean, they're they're saying like, well, I guess it's not as horrible as as we once thought it was. So, yeah, you know, I've heard I've heard the foes give try to give examples about problems but it always seems like they're trying to uh, oh yeah like uh, and i'm not advocating any any of this but before any listener says anything they'll, they'll say okay uh, a kid brought gummies to school and three kids got high that's yeah. the parents problem that's not the, the cannabis's problem that should have been locked up but yeah. Yeah, they'll use any small thing that they can to try and make a big deal out of it but yes down here in the south we have laws going back to the turn of the century before Aslinger even, even tried to regulate uh, cannabis and things like that, that, yeah, they'll try and use you like crazy. The tax stamp still exists down here. The cannabis marijuana tax stamp still exists in the South. It's crazy. I mean, that's a federal thing. So it exists everywhere. And, and like in terms of the international laws and, and, you know, separate from the politics of it, I mean, basically all of the states, that are making any sort of changes to open a market um, with some very, very minor exceptions. They're all breaking, causing the U.S. to break international laws. And so mm -hmm. you have other countries looking at it and say, wait a sec, you know, the U.S., you're the one that is making us enforce these laws and you can't control Colorado or, you know, wherever, <laughs> you know, and, and that's the, the U S uh, obviously political system that mm -hmm. it's hard to understand for a lot of people outside the U S that you have this you know, kind of federal structure, but, you know, you look at places like Uruguay, 
that that basically did a cost benefit analysis and they mm -hmm. said it's worth it for us to maintain these laws even though in the country the people they had no real interest there wasn't a lot of support for legalizing um, marijuana it was the government that said this just doesn't make sense for us to use our resources to do that and so i think it would be valuable for a lot of countries to follow uruguay's example mm -hmm. say, like what is this getting us right it's not getting us much of anything and then look at the u.s example and say well the u.s is violating all these international you know drug control agreements um why shouldn't we i mean mm -hmm. and, and the same said for you know you know, other countries, you know, in Western Europe and, and you, know, you know, wherever, Canada, that are, um, you know, decriminalizing or legalizing cannabis in various ways. These are all, you know, with some minor exceptions on violations of international law. And, uh, you know, the countries that are in the global south don't have as much, you know, flexibility and leverage to just ignore those laws. At least they think so, right? Or at least right. they have so pressures that that within those countries say that no we need to maintain mm -hmm. these drug control for various reasons but um uruguay i think is a really interesting example and and um you yeah. know it's it's been success it hasn't been a failure at least for them i mean it depends on any measure of success but it certainly hasn't been a, a failure for them to mm -hmm. to legalize I've heard, uh, I have looked at Uruguay recently. Um, I mean, in the beginning, it sounded real promising. Their, their goal was to get cannabis down to less than $1 per gram. Mm -hmm. And they were successful in doing that, which, which pretty much kills your black market pretty, pretty quickly. But lately, I'm hearing that, that uh, finding a pharmacist who will sell you cannabis in Uruguay is not easy. And it's also supply is, is, uh, is, low, is low for the pharmacists. So the black market is, is again, flourish, flourishing in, in Uruguay. However, it's the local black market versus the across-the-border black market thing. Because yeah, and, they're, they're growing it locally now with impunity. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, I think that the interesting dynamic there is that the population, I mean, in the U.S., all of the state-level efforts have been like, popular you know grassroots people say we want this to happen and, mm -hmm. and that's ultimately what happened Uruguay it wasn't like the people there didn't I mean there's always going to be people who support legalization and and but they were just a small percentage small minority in Uruguay it was the government that really said look in terms of managing our resources this is what we need to do and I think the problems of getting you know pharmacists to sell it and people produce it uh, for the for the market is just that they're there just isn't that much interest. I mean, I'm sure there's a couple of, I guess what you'd call activist pharmacists down there, but uh, for the most part, they just don't, you know, they don't have the drive to mm -hmm. do that. So it really hasn't closed down the black market. Um, right. You know, which is a, which is definitely a drawback. Uh, but it's, it was a, it's a great step and it was good concept though. And so, yeah, yeah. I think that they have something to work with, but they're, they have more work to do at this point would be a good yeah, way to put sure. it, I think. But for yeah, sure. I mean, well, we, we cover stories all the time on here about how how the police departments can save money with legal cannabis. One of them uh, was just last week. Uh, the, there was an article in the UK saying it cost, it cost the police forces about, about 450 uh, pounds to, to respond to a, an odor call from a legal marijuana patient in, in a housing facility. It cost them almost 500 so they can go in for $400 or less 
and give the guy a vape and they don't have to come back now because it doesn't stink up the housing project. Mm. So yeah. innovation, thinking outside the box, trying to make everything work is better than sitting there trying to, to slam people in jail and find them all the time. Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. And I mean, the US is like the, you know, by far the example of the cost of, of mass incarceration and, and so mm -hmm. much the incarceration at federal and state and local levels um, in the past, at least, has been cannabis. And, mm. you know, there's there's definitely situations where people do things with cannabis that can and should still be considered crimes. Right. Um, but for the most part, like you have these, you know, uh, you know, the enforcement of crimes for or, you know, possessing a joint or possessing a very small amount. Mm hmm cannabis or being observed consuming in public whatever the case might be i mean these are these are really minor and you can you know here in new mexico i mean you can see people drinking and, and doing dangerous horrible things with with other drugs you know that um that really should be the focus right you know not just simply having or possessing you know cannabis or or you know, or, you know, cannabis in particular, but like looking at the behaviors and uses that, that definitely need to be controlled, right? Getting high and driving, but all your, you know, your resources mm -hmm. that rather than like, you know, stopping and frisking somebody and jailing them because they have a joint in their back pocket or whatever. So, you know, I think that the police agencies are seeing that uh, advantage in terms of being able to shift resources elsewhere. I also think that's um, kind of a reason why there's there's less motivation on a federal level to, um, you know, fully legalize um, because it's very helpful for prosecutors if, um, you know, somebody's busted on one thing and they happen to have cannabis with them. Well, you add to their charges that way, right? It's very useful if if you you know from the perspective of. A, prosecutor um so i don't see a lot of you know i see that as being a reason why the federal government might want to maintain the status quo um, yeah and that's pretty much why our you know our advocate market is, is is against this because it leaves that to the discretion of the law enforcement officer it's not a, an even thing i hate yeah. to say it but if my face is white i'm going to get off easier in the south than if my face is black for and, sure uh, you know, uh, yeah, I'll have, I will have to admit it and I will apologize for the statement if it offends anybody, but it's true. Well, you yeah. And, and there's been a lot of research and in looking at disparities and arrests, um, you know, these are international human rights organizations that have done this research. You know, Human Rights Watch is the, you know, Amnesty International and, you know, racism you know, long preexisted you know, anti-marijuana or anti-drug laws um, in the U.S., but drug laws have been a point where you can, you know, enforce this kind of Jim Crow uh, reality through mass incarceration, right? And uh, I'm white, right? I'm middle-aged white guy, right? I'm in a position that I don't experience um, social issues and social problems as as do many other people in our society but in to me the the main reason that cannabis um, should be legalized federally and in all states is because that reduces a point at which racial racist 
you know, law enforcement can can be, you know, exercised. It's not going to remove racism. It's not going to remove, you know, the the you know driving while black, for instance, um, conditions. But it's you know it's a demonstrated center of racist law enforcement. So if we can reduce that or eliminate that point of possibility, um, you know, that's why we should do it. If if nothing else. Mm -hmm. I'm all for it. Yeah, by all means, it's fair for everybody. Yeah, and, and that goes. And I, I'm, I doubt there's any, you know, many at least listeners to your podcast that think that cannabis is dangerous or or bad or whatever. Even if people think that cannabis is dangerous or bad or shouldn't be used, whatever, they should still support legalization just to reduce that point of racist uh, law enforcement. Right, step in the right direction, but yeah. Um, Get, get your police officers out there handling public safety and, and stop chasing this this little, I hate to split it, to the, the stupid little plant that everybody loves so much. It's not harming anybody, but there's a lot of other things going on out there. I mean, we've heard about some really bad things in the U.S. lately, and I don't want to bring up too many of them because we'll get YouTube flagged. Yeah, you know, and, and that's important to kind of um, think about it in context. And I think that that's part of a reason on state levels that, there is this action, this motion towards legalization or decriminalization. I mean, even people in places where cannabis doesn't have a history of a positive reputation, um, South Dakota, Oklahoma, we keep bringing those up, right? Mm -hmm. um, people see that there's bigger problems, right? There's bigger things to worry about, um, you know, and uh, I think that that's, um, you know, a, a good thing. Um, again, I think it's too bad that it's not you know, globally uniform, there's places around the world where, you know, it would be good to shift resources as an outsider looking in to shift resources towards bigger problems. Um, but, you know, each society progresses and does things on its own. So and for its own reasons, some um, apparently, I should say, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, honestly, as well, there's a lot of places where cannabis is illegal and and it those laws just aren't enforced because it's not a it's not a priority it doesn't seem like a problem and i mean clearly in places you know sudan comes to mind and you know look at news of the the civil war there i mean <laughs> cannabis is illegal there um but like spending time on cannabis law reform is not what is needed at this point in time mm. so you know yeah it's very point taken yeah yeah so when it comes to your book, because you focused on Africa, do you see any time in the future that you might, I mean, what did, what, what made you focus on Africa in the first place? And do you think that you'll expand to talk about cannabis in the Middle East at some point? Well, I mean, I've been focused on Africa uh, since the early 1990s. That's when I started studying in Ghana. And then I've you know, most of my time I've spent in Mali and a little bit of time in Guinea-Bissau. Um, so I focused on Africa long before I um, <laughs> focused on cannabis for anything other than um, right. uh, individual enjoyment, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but moving forward, what I find is really interesting, the relationship between cannabis and labor and cannabis and class um, historically and Presently, it's really been um, a drug, a subsistence resource for people who have few other options, right? And so it's used by, has been used by hard laborers, um, 
enslaved people, porters I've mentioned in the African context. And even nowadays, even though the, the demographics are changing, the social meaning of it is changing, that it's becoming something that's acceptable in middle and upper class uses. If you look at epidemiologically, it's still associated with, with um, um, working classes, lower social economic classes. And, and trying to understand that relationship, why that is, I think is interesting. And what I'd like to do is look at hemp in that context, because, mm. you know, you'll see discourse about, you know, hemp will save the world and, and hemp was so incredibly valuable until Anslinger came, came along. But if you actually look at the, the history of, of hemp, um, it really reached its high point in the early 1800s. And, and after that, it kind of declined in importance for various reasons other plants became more easily and readily accessible. So things like jute is produced in South Asia or, or um, flax and different types of, uh, you know, agave, sisal, you know, number of different plants became more and more important and kind of pushed hemp out of its uses. Um, but the other reason is that it was really labor intensive and people just didn't want to use it. So for much of the last several centuries of hemp's, prominence it was forced on people right it was prison labor it was slave labor in the in, in the u.s it was um you know in the in the uk if you went to the poorhouse right if you went to prison a lot of what you were doing was working on hemp industries because it mm. was something people just didn't want to do so i'm really interested in looking at that um cannabis in the least um that would be something that really needs to be studied. Um, cannabis in Iran um, really needs to be studied. There's language issues there. I'm not, um, uh, my Arabic skills are very low. I don't have any uh, Farsi skills. So we really need to have people who are able to engage in those languages and, and kind of understand what's going on there. There's a couple of e uh, Egyptians who are doing interesting research, but we really need to diversify globally, like who is doing this research. Um, but that's hemp is kind of what I'm looking at nowadays. Cool. It's interesting. It's an interesting plant too, you know, and it's part, it's part of cannabis. It's a type of cannabis. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and understanding it better is really important. I think for understanding how cannabis uh, marijuana has been, framed politically. Um, one of the things that I I try to do in my book is to really um, try to be diplomatic here, but really challenge the discourse, a lot of the political discourse that ended up helping cannabis become legal in many parts of the US um, that emerged in the 1960s, 1970s. Things like um, you know, The Emperor Wears No Clothes by Jack Herrer. Mm -hmm. um, very effective political advocacy book, but it's been used as history and it's almost entirely nonsense in terms of history. And that's something that a lot of pro-cannabis people don't like hearing. But if you look at- Yeah, that wasn't most... nice to hear. That wasn't, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you look at most of the, the, you know, ostensible facts in that book, they're not. They're they're distortions or just made up. And that's, mm. you know, again, it's like it was really effective political advocacy. 
you know, Herer was very important for shaping the political context that led to legalization in many parts of the U.S. Um, but historically, uh, he wasn't a historian. And mm -hmm. a lot of political discourse that, that emerged about cannabis in the, the 90s and 2000s as, as legalization was unfolding um, were really not accurate. And so what I think is important is to... Um, acknowledge that cannabis is underutilized, acknowledge that marijuana isn't, you know, going to melt your brain and kill people or whatever, you know, but also that it has baggage, right? It was a plant that traveled with slavery. It was used by slavers to control slaves as much as appreciated by slaves. Um, mm -hmm. Really grapple with the reality of the history. I mean, the fact that you know, cannabis hemp was essentially unimportant um, economically in the 1920s, uh, you know, 1880s in the U.S. Um, that meant that, you know, the Marijuana Tax Act, right, the Stamp Act in, the, in 1937, it really didn't affect any industry. I mean, there was hardly any hemp being grown at that point in time. And that's contrary to what a lot of the discourse about cannabis um, has been in, in terms of reasons for its legalization is talking about how it's just, you know, hemp will save the world, right? You've seen, there's, that was a slogan you see on bumper stickers and stuff. Um, it, it's really not an accurate portrayal of hemp in the past. I mean, this was also a, a product that was associated with ex exploitation, right? Slave labor, prison labor, that's what kept, kept cannabis hemp um, in the market as long as it was there. I mean, in the 1800s, it was primarily Russian hemp that was useful worldwide, and that depended upon the, the, you know, the surf labor system that they had there. Cheap labor made it possible. So, you know, again, like challenging, you know, political activists to, to say, okay, let's, you've, you've, you've made a lot of progress. We're at a good point. Let's be real, though, about the fact that, that this plant carries baggage for various mm -hmm. reasons and not just keep saying the same things, you know, about Queen Victoria using marijuana. She didn't. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's be honest here. Um, and, and so that's what, you know, partly what drives me in, in, in the research, not to say. Yeah, that, that would be a good <clears throat> book to read, man. We've all, you know, just uh, debunking all of the myths yeah. that have been, you know, just turned into... Uh, on cannabis law, like not L A W law, but L A O R R E law, you know that kind yeah, of yeah. law. Yeah, yeah. and to, I mean the the Queen Victoria thing is is fascinating because that goes to you know these early nineteen seventies uh, you know pro cannabis writings and it's you know become part of the political discourse. But really, how Queen Elizabeth did use marijuana was that you know she benefited from plantation systems and slave systems where the the you know the indentured south asian laborers mm. produced sugar right the mm. the enslaved africans who produced you know rubber and, and and sugar and stuff she was making money off that her her empire her personal wealth grew because these people were using cannabis in order to do the work that they were forced to do right and so she mm. was using it but indirectly, right? Mm. She was never prescribed and she never used it. Um, and that's the challenge, I think, before, you know, pro-cannabis activists is to say, look, yes, this is a plan that should be better understood, should be more widely accessible. 
but it's not a plant that has no bad sides, right? Mm -hmm. You know, dark inches historically here. And let's think about that. What does that mean, right? And for me, you know, it means that we really need to recognize that this is a plant in terms of marijuana, right? That really is valuable for the people who have very few other options, right? Cancer patients who've lost appetite, right? People who have, you know, you know, need palliative care. It's really effective mm -hmm. in those contexts. And historically, that's what we see as well, right? Enslaved people, um, you know, exploited labor. They had no income or very little income. They had very few resources. This was something that was available to them and it was very effective. And so embracing that history, I mean, it's not an easy thing to embrace, but to say, look, this is something that has this history of helping those who had very few options. What can we learn from that? And, you know, that's to me better than, than making up things. And George Washington used marijuana. He didn't, right? You know, and just be more honest about that and, and, and kind of understanding that in order to create something new um, mm -hmm. we move forward. As they say, man, the truth might hurt, but it's always right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's a good way of thinking of it. Mm. It's been very interesting talking to you. We've kept you for a full hour now, a little bit over, and I know you probably have many, many other things to do. But it's been a very insightful conversation, man. We want to thank you for coming to join us, Chris. Yeah, it's been great to talk, and uh, I, I look forward to, to learning and hearing more of your work. It sounds great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can go and check out more of your work? Or do you have a website people can go to? Where can they buy your book, uh, The African Roots of Marijuana? And maybe uh, will you be making a book in the future? <laughs> Yeah, so the, the most recent book is The African Roots of Marijuana. It's by Duke University Press. You can get it wherever you buy books on, you know, um, uh, you know, find a place. Uh, yeah, everywhere. Books. Amazon, everybody, Amazon. In all book, yeah, all Amazon, good bookstores. Waterstones, yeah. <laughs> Waterstones, right? Um, yeah. You know, so Amazon's a good place for it. Um, the first book, I wrote a book in uh, 2014 just called Cannabis. You can buy that all over the place. If you're good at searching. It's a great internet, title. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you're good at searching on the internet, somebody has uh, scanned PDF up there so you can get that for free. Um, right. So dig around, you'll find it. Um, and so that's there. But uh, yeah, I mean, my you can, I'm easy to contact. Uh, I'm a professor at UNM. So Duval at unm.edu and track me down and glad to. Glad to answer questions if, if I can. Awesome. Awesome. Nice. nice. Yeah, man. So it's a shame to let you go, really. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, maybe in the future, if, if you do start that new project on that new book there about uh, busting cannabis myths or whatever you're going to call it, then you're yeah. always welcome to come back and talk to us about it, do, about the research that you figured out, things like that. You're always welcome to come back and come and chat with us if you want to. Yeah, that would be great. I'd appreciate it. But uh, it's good to make contact and, and good luck with your work as you move forward. And you too. You too. And thank you again for coming to join us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no problem. It's good to meet you and, and take care now. Nice. Thank Thanks, you, Chris. Chris. We're waving, but you can't see that, of course. That's right. <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> thank you so much, sir. Appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, no problem. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.
And there we go, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to know more about Christoval, then all you have to do is Google search. That's the best way because he has so many links out there and loads of information about him. So the best thing to do to find out that information is just Google Chris S. Duvall. That's Chris, C-H-R-I-S, with Duvall, which is D-U-V-A-L-L. So you'll be able to find loads of information and where to find these books from there. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you, as always, for downloading and listening to the show. We appreciate every single download, and that includes this one, which you have done. So thank you very much. And head out there and find out more of our interviews. If you go to our website, highonhomegrown.com slash interviews, you'll see loads of interviews there, nearly 100 interviews from legends from all over the cannabis world. So go and check out the website if you haven't done that already. There's loads of episodes over there. But of course, you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, Deezer, Stitcher, all of the major podcast networks. So whichever one you prefer to use, go to your favorite podcast provider, search for High on Homegrown and download all of our episodes. I hope you enjoy every single one of them. But anyway, thank you again for downloading and listening to the show. And we will catch you on the next one, which is Friday for the Grow Guides about how to grow purple buds. Have a great week, everybody. Stay high, stay safe, and we'll see you then. Goodbye.